outrightinternational.org Ukraine. Hello from the employees of the Commonwealth Club. Before we begin, we want to take a moment to acknowledge the international crisis taking place in Ukraine and highlight an organization providing humanitarian assistance to people living in or fleeing Ukraine because of the war. Outright Action International is an organization dedicated to fighting for the human rights of lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, intersex, and queer people everywhere. In response to the Russian invasion, Outright established a Ukraine fund to support local partners in Ukraine and neighboring countries who are providing emergency assistance to LGBTIQ people in need of safe shelter, food, medical care, transportation for those fleeing the country, and other types of humanitarian support. Because mainstream humanitarian systems too frequently leave LGBTIQ people behind. We encourage you to learn more about how to support Outright's important work by visiting outrightinternational.org slash Ukraine. Thank you for listening. Welcome to another podcast from Inforum, an innovation lab at the Commonwealth Club of California. Get tickets to upcoming live or online events at commonwealthclub.org slash Inforum. Want even more Inforum? Find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at InforumSF. And now, here's our program. Hi, everybody. Welcome to tonight's program with Inforum and the Commonwealth Club. I'm Roy Bahat, a startup investor, the head of Bloomberg Beta. And I'm here with Jane McGonkle, who is one of these people who's very hard to describe. Futurist, game maker, theorist. Jane is the author of Imaginable how to see the future coming and feel ready for anything, even the things that seem impossible today. And we are going to cover a lot of terrain in the next hour, and we will be taking your questions. You can put them in the YouTube text chat. I can't promise that I or Jane will be here and watching all of that because we'll be talking with each other, but we'll try to get to you. So, all right, Jane. And Roy, I'm so glad that we're having this conversation together. You are one of the best futures thinkers that I know. So thank you for uh, for being here. Well, I really appreciate it. And we can, you know, we'll banter after about, you know, wh- which one of us is actually better at playing werewolf. But but actually that that thing about future thinkers is where I really wanted to start, which is I once got introduced on some panel as an expert in the future. And I was like, "Mm, I literally think that's impossible. And so I want to ask you a how did you get here question, which is like kids grow up and they want to be like an astronaut or a video game maker, you know, and being a futurist is not exactly a thing that a kid grows up knowing you can be. And so just maybe trace us to this point of how does one become an expert in the future? I know. That is such a fun question. I often ask myself, how did I wind up in this life? Um, So, I mean, I had a a pretty fun career as a game designer and I actually got scouted, which I didn't know was a thing, but essentially scouted by an organization that, you know, uh, the Institute for the Future, which is one of the world's uh, oldest futures organizations. And they, I guess they really understood that old saying that the best way to predict the future is to invent it. And so, you know, they were looking for people who were busy making the future. And I was running around, you know, as a game designer, trying to get people to make a new genre of games, games that help gamers apply their gaming skills to real world problems like ending poverty or taking climate action. And uh, they're like, hey, as long as you're thinking about what the future of games should be like, come make some games for us and we'll teach you some future thinking skills. And, uh, and I wound up, I wound up making another type of game that is the basis for this book and for most of the work that I do now, which are these kinds of social simulations of the future. Yeah. So let's talk about those games. Cause I feel like people can relate to some people can relate to some kinds of games. Like I remember playing the Sims or Sim city where you're simulating a city and, you know, I played plenty of like action adventure games, but that's not really what we're talking about. So maybe put us in like, what does a player 
of the kind of game that you made, the kind of game that led to this book? What do they actually experience? Mm, great. So a social simulation, it doesn't take place in a virtual world or like a 3D gaming environment where you have an avatar. They actually take place on social networks that are created exclusively for the simulation. And these are platforms that look and act a lot like Facebook or Twitter. Or yeah, like Discord. isn't Facebook, I mean, just to interrupt for a second and, you know, immigrant family, we express love through interruptions. So you can interrupt me right back. Part of me when I read it is like, you already have a game like that. It's called <laughs> being on Instagram or something yeah. like that. So so is that what people should imagine? Like, what is a yeah. game about Imagine this? you're you're on a social network with thousands of other people, but this is a special social network where everything that's being posted and shared is from the future. And so when you're posting your latest, you know, thoughts or asking for advice, you're creating content along with thousands of others uh, about a hypothetical scenario that we've asked you to imagine living through. And, and sort of famously in 2008, when the Institute, we did our first big social simulation with about 8,000 people, we were asking people to imagine living through a global respiratory pandemic that had all kinds of complicated and, and complexifying crises like supply chain disruptions and bad actors online spreading misinformation. And people spent six weeks sharing their detailed imagination, answering questions like, imagine you've been asked to isolate for two weeks by the CDC. Under what circumstances do you violate this order? Why would you go out? And, you know, the number one response that I saw was for religious worship, right? It was so core to people's identity that they would go anyway. And of course, that's what we saw, right? In the real, uh, the real pandemic, um, we were imagining one, but, but when we lived through something like what we imagined, people really did do the types of things that they said uh, they would do. And, uh, well, and so, so, so let me ask about that because there was, so, so I feel like there's this Cassandra element to what you're describing of you're sitting there prophesying the future and yet, and you know, one of the things I love about like what I often, like I'm one of these people who flips to the end of the book and sees like you have 35 pages or however many pages of source notes, 33 pages of source notes. I'm like, okay, this is well-researched, Jane, understandable. And you had this stat in the beginning on how many millions of times in news stories, the words, I forget what the exact words were, unthinkable or unimaginable came up, which on the one hand, I guess I would love for you to help make sense of this paradox of on the one hand, you're the professional future predicting organization, literally, you know, figuring out exactly what happened. And on the other hand, there are endless news articles about the unimaginability of our future that we then live through exactly what you imagined. And so how do you, how do you make sense of that, 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 that weird kind of juxtaposition? Mm, I mean, well, the first way I make sense of it is that we only had 8,000 people play that game. So sure. that's, that's more people need to know, know about it. Yeah. Hence the book. <laughs> yes. Um, and I, I did kind of have that, that fire in my pants. Like I, I want people to be able to confidently say that these futures are not unimaginable or that, that transformative change is not unthinkable. We can think it, we can imagine it, you know, uh, the the statistic that you mentioned, so it was two and a half million stories with the word unimaginable and three million with the word unthinkable since the start of 2020. And it's, you know, it's not just that, to some extent, these words, you know, speak to collective shock, right? We feel blindsided by reality, but we also use them to express anger and grief. We say unimaginable to mean heartbreaking. We say unthinkable, right? To be unjust, unforgivable. And so there's a collective trauma aspect to this language as well. And, you know, what, what I hope that Futures Thinking can help the world do is, is to process what we've been through and try to, I guess, make meaning of the suffering that we've been through, through this great disruption by feeling like we have a mandate and we have the, the power and opportunity to, to look ahead and be more prepared and also be more intentional and purposeful about creating change. I mean, we all just live through perfect evidence that we can change 
all of society and how we do things, how we work, how we learn, how we shop, how we sit. We can just change it almost overnight. So there's no excuse to not pursue transformative change. But all of these changes that we made, it was in crisis mode. And it might not have been what we actually want to to continue going forward. But let's use that lived experience of dramatic transformative change, but now with some tools of future thinking to help us, you know, use the next 10 years to, to change in ways that we want to sustain and that really make for a better world. All right. So we've talked a little bit about how you got to like what the motivation was for getting here and how you got here. I want to ask one or two more things about that. And then let's get in the meat of sort of the, you know, on some level, another word I think we could use for you is teacher is you're teaching people about how to practice this methodology that you and relatively few people have practiced. But so just in terms of how we get here, uh, how you got here, one of the things that struck me is this is a moment where as often happens when experts contemplate scenarios for the future, they realize all the grist you need to take action is here right now. And, you know, here we are, you know, two people who have plenty of privileges talking about imagining a future. And I guess I'm curious about how to reconcile the privilege of us getting to imagine the future with the reality of a broken present where so many things are awful. And so, you know, I guess I'd ask it this way for, for whom is this skill of, of thinking about the future really worth doing versus should we be like, you know, looking at the tragedy at our feet and just figuring out what to do about it? Yeah. I mean, looking at the tragedy at our feet can include thinking about the future. Oh, say more Um, about that. I mean, you know, I work with, and we work with people who are suffering and who see the future as a source of hope and, and motivation um, that, that if you're angry about injustice, you know, instead of just raging, we try to imagine and vividly communicate to others what a more just world would look like. How how do we how do we fix this? Right, we have to be able to articulate the world that we want to live in, right, and to to share preferred futures. And I think um, you know there there's certainly good evidence. Um, neuroscientists study that if if you are poor, if you're food insecure, economically insecure. Um, it is actually harder to think about the future, um, that there's a, there's a sense of scarcity that makes it uh, difficult for your brain to switch into a kind of zoomed out perspective. So you're absolutely right that it is easier to think about the future if you feel secure, but that doesn't mean it's not important to think about the future because I, I truly believe that you know, what, what helps us jump out of bed in the morning is the belief that the it can be better better and we could make it better through our own actions. Yeah. I mean, what comes up for me, as you say that, you know, as startup investors, we spend a lot of time with entrepreneurs, the, and the uh, most remarkable community of entrepreneurs that I ever met was we did this program where we would go to a maximum security prison and coach incarcerated individuals on their entrepreneurial plans. One of the reasons for that is a lot of employers won't hire a convicted felon, but you know, starting something of your own is a job for which you don't need permission. And the fact of people who are sitting in jail in prison and who use the tool of planning for their own futures as a constructive way of building their lives, including people who had years left on their sentence, was, you know, it's just that, you know, made me think about that. And I think that there's, there's this really, um, I don't know, like, touching humanity in the mechanisms that you propose, because I have to admit, when I picked up the book, I thought, you know, we have so many horrible things in our world right now. And it's like, okay, like the be ridiculous, you know, idea that you have in there kind of felt to me a little like, do I have license to be ridiculous? And then I started reading and one concept I'd love for you to talk about is I'll give you in a second the chance to just say how to, how do you do this? But I'd love to start with this concept of hard empathy because you described easy empathy and hard empathy 
as a way that you start as a person kind of relating to your own future self. So let's just start with that. What, what's, the, what's the skill of empathy that you think we need to begin to practice to look into the future in this way? Yeah. I mean, well, the, the first thing we need to do is build empathy for our future self. And studies suggest that when we imagine ourselves in the future, especially if it's further out than a few years, so five years out, 10 years out, our brain does this really weird thing where it kind of powers down the region that is associated with our core identity, our most important values and hopes and fears. And it our brain acts like it's thinking about a stranger and it's it's almost like we have this this intuition that you know whoever I'll be 10 years from now it's unknowable and and the side the side effect of that is we tend to not take actions that benefit our far future selves. You know, there's um, a researcher Hal Hirschfield at UCLA who studied you know why don't we invest you know financially in our future. And he said, based on what he was seeing with the fMRI results, it literally feels like you're giving money to a stranger on the street. Why would you do that? You wouldn't do that. Um, so, so on one hand, there are these skills that you can practice to start to feel like you know your future self better. And so by keeping a journal from the future and not just, you know, making stuff up, but keeping a journal from the future, incorporating signals of change, real things that are happening today that might influence how the world turns out, or keeping a journal from a scenario that a professional futurist has uh, designed, and you're writing about your life in this future, then you start to feel like you know your future self better, you develop more empathy, and you're more likely to, there's this whole bullet list of things that you're more likely to do. You're more likely to eat healthier, to exercise more, to, if you start a meditation habit or some other healthy habit, you're more likely to keep it up. I imagine myself 30 pounds lighter. <laughs> Would you? I mean, you could, and that could be. Sure. Uh, well, I mean, I, I think that one interesting human activity that that sounds like to me is, and I say this as a compliment, is fiction writing. Is that, you know, you're journaling, fiction writing follows these real rules of the construction of stories. And I know one of the ways that we first started talking was around. Uh, universal basic income and imagining one particular future. And one of the most rewarding things that we did in that process was invited short story writers to imagine what a future might look like, because to construct a world that you could journal about and imagine yourself in, you have to imagine how all the pieces fit together. It has to be real in a way that is um, that really forces you to think about it. And, uh, you know, I'm curious, just before I ask you really like, what's the method? Tell us the how-to. You are training as a game maker. In what ways does that inform, like what does a game maker actually do that informs how you imagine these future scenarios? Yeah, well, maybe I can talk about that specific example of universal basic income and how I approached it um, and trying to provoke imagination about it because it's uh, very much drawing on my my game designer background and philosophy. Um, so, you know, even, even you and I started working on this concept, we were sort of getting active and interested in the idea of UBI before it sort of hit. A oh yeah. Five, six years ago, <laughs> long before Andrew Yang. Yeah. Um, but all, I feel like already there was a little bit of a political, political state. What, what's the word? There's like it, people had opinions about it that felt reactive rather than well thought out. Um, and I could see this when I was teaching at Stanford. And Won't people and, stop working? That kind of stuff. Yeah, very, yeah. very, exactly. So, you know, what I always do when I design a game is I ask you to forget about everyone else. I don't want you to make predictions about what you think other people would do. You were the expert on your own future. That is what you were the expert on. So I designed very a very simple playable scenario which is that a thousand dollar check shows up every month it's a thank you check and uh, I, I i didn't want to frame it using the language of ubi because you know that might people might react with some assumptions or that they, that they've already started forming and just imagine that this is a thank you check for some service that you've done to humanity or your community or whatever whatever it is that you think you deserve to be thanked for and you're going to get one thousand dollar check for, you know, 
forever now and your and your family's getting it and your friends are getting it too now start journaling what are you doing with the first check how does it feel when you open it what are what's your mom excited about what's she doing with that money what are you what plans are you making and to allow people to have a firsthand experience so it's, it's like i want you to like drop into these scenarios like they were virtual reality experiences where you can look around and be like, what do I see? What do I feel? What do I want to do? What am I excited about? What am I scared about? Um, and, and kind of take it out of the realm of abstract debate. And, and also I just, people aren't good. And this is where it comes back to hard empathy. You know, if, if people make all kinds of weird assumptions, like, well, people are going to get lazy and they'll just stay home and play video games. And yet literally nobody writes when they do this exercise, I'm going to stay home and play video games. Never. Like literally I've never seen that. Um, and so you, we, we develop this hard empathy, which is truly understanding what someone who has lived a different experience from us or has different values or hopes or fears. We understand what they want and need by looking at the future from our own point of view and allowing them to do so. And then we share, which is why when we run these social simulations and now you're on this private social network from the future and you're seeing what these people are excited about and these people are worried about and what these people want and need. Now we have this incredibly rich empathy for how the future might affect people differently. And we've contributed to other people's empathy because we've shared what we would want or need. And to me, this is, this is the magic where we can get past, you know, I, I don't know, just these, these heated debates and, and social divisions where we're not, we're not able to sit deeply with what it would feel like if we yeah, tried we this oversimplify. Mm. Um, and do these things where I think oftentimes it's how do we have our reaction to something, some new idea, something about the future, how do we have it validate our sense of self? You know, when the future doesn't care about our sense of self, it's just going to arrive and do what we want it to do. So, all right, I'm going to ask you to do something unfair, which is suppose I am the prospective reader and uh, I'm sold. Like you've convinced me that I should be, you know, I should be practicing this trade of seeing the future coming, but I don't quite know how to get started or what to do. So what's the, I realize that's the whole book in a sense. That's why it's an unfair question. But if I wanted to just get started and be able to, you know, have some empathy with my future self, anticipating the future, what's the, what is the Cliff's Notes version of a how-to on how to begin doing this? Yeah, well, I mean... Everything in the book is designed to be played and you can have conversations with your family about the scenarios um, or you can join our new public community at the Institute for the Future. So we have this community is called Urgent Optimists, plural, um, and we are having a scenario club. So once a month you come, you see the new scenario, you say what you would feel and do. You get to hear what people from around the world would say and do. We've, we've just uh, launched this club a few weeks ago. We have just under a thousand people now playing in scenario club. Um, we have game nights where you can come and do a hundred ways. Anything could be different. In the I future. find that That's on the Institute for the Future website or something like that. Yeah. Or just Great. Google urgent optimists. Um, and because, you know, what I've really learned in, in all of this work, and I think speaks to, you know, my perspective as a game designer is that futures thinking is a community practice and we, right. We're never going to see the future clearly if we're stuck in our own mind and, I find it a very therapeutic practice, to be honest, to to come together. You know, I mean, I feel so I've designed Urgent Optimist to be similar to uh, like a Zen Sangha, right, where, you know, you come. Well, you know, we don't just practice Zen Buddhism on your own. You come and meditate with a group and you come and hear Dharma talks so you can learn from experienced teachers. And there is just this like rhythm of it, it becomes a part of your life, a daily habit, a community gathering, um, ongoing teachings. And I think, you know, f future thinking is not like you make predictions once a year and then you wait to see what happens. Um, we we can do this as as a habit, as rituals. Fascinating. Um, and uh, and that's that's so I would say, you know, come join, come join a community okay, and, I love and that. just practice with us. And so people do come to these um, 
you know, how to anticipate the future with some motivating question, I find usually they, you know, in my case, it has been, what would technology's influence on work be? Now I'm fascinated by labor organizing. What's going to happen with labor organizing in the United States? And I can see in the chat, we have some questions around AI in this regard. And so would love to hear any favorite you know, kind of objects of contemplation of a thing you think about. And specifically when you think about advanced technology, you know, somebody else asked about AI and education. Are there, how do you think about future anticipation around those advanced technologies? Great. I'm going to ruffle some feathers. Are ruffle. you ready? <laughs> yeah, I promise you won't ruffle mine. I am concerned that so many people, when they think about the future, it's like there's a predetermined narrative about what is going to be the most influential drivers of change. And, you know, um, a very famous technologist, futurist, um, heard I wrote a book and was like, I'm doing a big conference. Would you have a chapter about some, you know, transformative technology that you can like maybe AI or the metaverse or cryptocurrency? And I, I mean, I do talk about technologies in the book, but all of the transformative ideas in the book are human ideas. They are policies, they are laws, they are geopolitical strategies, they are human behaviors, they're social movements. And I, I have come to realize after 15 years uh, as a futurist, I think we have really underestimated the, the importance of how we design society, you know, whether it's, you know, I, I mean, yeah. So like for me, one of the biggest questions is how are people going to move on this planet as we experience climate change? And are we going to adapt and transform migration laws and border policies? Or are we going to leave people trapped behind borders to suffer and die? I don't know how, what AI has to do with that. It's to me, the burning questions are, are we going to be, are we going to change the rules of society to be, to, to support humanity's long-term well-being? And it's, you know, it, People, I may, I feel like maybe we just haven't done enough as a field to talk about things other than technology. And so, you know, there's like such a thing as a techno optimist who believes that we'll solve our problems through technology and science. And I am, I'm a huge science nerd, science optimist, but I consider myself now a socio optimist. I feel like people are going to say we can do better and we're just changing the system. And that's, uh, that's where I'm putting, uh, you'll see the scenarios in the book are very much focused on like, what if we made produce free for everybody? And how would that change our healthcare system? And what would it feel like to live in this abundance? And imagine if we had abundance, and we wouldn't feel like there's so much scarcity, and we have to compete with the I mean, there are so many ways to transform life on earth um, that uh, don't necessarily or will not necessarily be driven by technology. Yeah. I mean, I, I love the social change what ifs because they can be these levers that move so many things. One of the factors about anticipating the future that I've found people struggle with, and certainly that when I talk to people about the domain I know, which is work that people struggle with is what you know, in some of that work we met around five years ago that Institute for the Future helped us do to anticipate scenarios for work, we were talking about what we called the tectonic shifts. And what we meant by that was not just the phrase of it's big, we meant it is slow but, and enormous, but we also kind of ignore it. And my favorite is the aging population. You know, every today I was talking to somebody and he said, the future of work is young people. I was like, ah, Julie, the future of work is where, old Where are you going to find the young people? Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, of course, by definition, the future is young people because young people will age and be in the future. But if we look at how the composition of, of the industrialized world, and it may be true elsewhere, but I just don't know it as well, will change in the U.S. and in plenty of other places, it's just going to get a lot older. And that's the kind of thing that it's like, people are like, oh yeah. Anyway, you met any young entrepreneurs with big ideas? It's like, huh? And so I'm curious about if you have any reflections on what it is that's hard for people about these, you know, these tectonic shifts, or are they not hard for people? Maybe I'm mistaken on that. No, I mean, well, look, first of all, there's a 
very basic neurological obstacle to accepting that things can change, right? We have this normalcy bias in our brain. Right. Because, Back to normal. Right. I mean, like if every day we woke up and we were trying to understand, okay, what's true? How do things work? Like it would, we would be overwhelmed. It would be anxiety nonstop. So our brain assumes that things will generally go on as normal. It's just, it's a coping mechanism sure. for reality. And by the way, most of the time, most days are similar to the previous day. So it's like a reasonably good rule of thumb. Yes, exactly. The, the problem is it prevents people from believing that significant change is possible, whether it's change we want or change that we don't want, but we, sh- we need to be ready for. And we're slower to recognize change as it's happening. Um, so we, we do need techniques to, to overcome this normalcy bias. The aging population is, is a great example um, because also there's a youth boom in other parts of the world, especially the continent of Africa. And so it's like we're going to be having diverging experiences on this planet unless we start to, you know, well, there's a million, there's a million interventions we could make. Uh, and, and that is something people are grappling with, right? How do we make it, um, how do we make people feel economically secure enough to have children? How do we help people feel like the planet is not going to be burning so many people say that they're not having kids because they're worried that climate change is going to make like they'll feel guilty for bringing people into this planet. You know, there's so many things we could pursue as possible solutions to the fact that that uh, I believe the is it was it the whole United States or just the south part of the United States where people died this year for the first time more people died than were born. Um, I just saw this headline, so you know that's. When you see a signal like that, you know, um, you need to you think, well, okay, um, it might take a decade, but what could we do to try to meaningfully reverse this? If we, if we want to reverse it, maybe we don't want to have kids, but we need to have different migration policies so that people, there's all these young people, they're just somewhere else. Maybe we should all try you know, moving around. Moving, yeah, moving together. <laughs> the, um, I, you know, I, I feel... So you, you've explained it, that there's a neurological blocker that we effectively have to get over by training ourselves to think differently. And, you know, the flip side of that is, and I imagine you know people like this. You are not a person like this, but I imagine you know people like this. Some of the people I know who think about the future the most often are the worst. They're like the people who are constantly catastrophizing um, you know, they are certainly not optimists because the, you know, the optimists often think, well, just leave it be. We'll be okay. But even some of the most techno optimistic people I know are like, I wish I had the money to buy a place with its own generator and, you know, they're preppers and that I'm not judging a prepper. People should feel free to prepare for whatever catastrophic scenarios we've certainly seen catastrophe can happen. And, you know, Everybody should have their go bags and all that. But what is it about getting better at anticipating the future and seeing these dire catastrophes? Is that how that shapes you? Or are there other ways that thinking about the future can shape you to be less about constantly worried about the sky falling? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a process, right? So what I have seen is that people who have clarity about real risks and threats, it actually feels better to be able to acknowledge reality and and look at it clearly. And then that's the first step of the process. And then into there there are things that you can do to essentially increase your sense of what I call urgent optimism. So that you Yeah, say of- more, but just can I just sidebar from that yeah. for a second? Because you use that phrase. And I'd love to, I mean, I I know the word urgent and I know the word optimist, but I think you mean it in a particular way. Can you just, before you keep answering, just explain what you mean by urgent optimism? So urgent optimism is just a really balanced, but motivating and resilient mindset that combines being aware of risks and threats that it's worth worrying about, readying ourselves for, maybe trying to prevent partnering that with this positive imagination where we learn as much as we can about 
new policy ideas, new technology, scientific breakthroughs, social movements, anything that could have an impact on making a better future. And we're trying to hold both of these in our mind at the same time. If you're just optimistic, then you assume the future is going to be great. You're not ready for the, the, the complications, the challenging futures that arise. If you're just urgent, you know, you're stressed out, you're anxious, maybe you don't realize where your power is to shape it. Um, one of my favorite things to do is just look for the helpers. Um, so it, because honestly, not everybody is going to solve every problem. I mean, you don't have to, Roy, you, Roy, do not have to stop the next pandemic. But but if there yes, are futures- Humanity has way better <laughs> hopes than that, but sorry, keep going. Yeah. yeah. Um, but if there are futures, you know, that you learn about and they, you're like, ah, that's, that sounds like it's worth worrying about. Um, the first thing I suggest you do is just inform yourself about who's thinking about this, who's acting on this now. Um, one of my favorite examples to get people excited about humanity's problem-solving capacity um, are all of the folks working on planetary defense. So I was so excited this past year. I finally got to attend this conference that I've been dying to go to forever which is the Planetary Defense Conference and people from This space is literally agency, prote protecting our planet. Literally from asteroids, near-Earth objects. And uh, what uh, it, it, was, it was happening in like Europe. And so I was like up in the middle of the night. I was like setting my alarm excitedly at like two in the morning because I just, it was all these people whose job it is to think about low probability, possible risk, and, and to prepare for it anyway to be ready for these, these future um, risks. And it's so exciting. They've got, they figured out, you know, scientific methods of detecting and predicting where something might hit. So instead of evacuating a whole continent, you only have to evacuate a town. They are thinking about misinformation. They're looking at what happened in the pandemic. And they're thinking like, if we have to notify the public about a possible asteroid or, or object that we would need to worry about, how do we, how do we build trust in this science, in this field? How do we communicate in a way that people don't say it's a conspiracy theory or they don't refuse to act? So they're, they're thinking proactively about these things. And, you know, there are people like this for every risk, every threat. And if we can just hang out with them, it's like it, 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 it's, it increases our awareness. I love that. Because what, what I hear you yeah. saying there, I mean, the thing that I really – see there is that sounds like a drill you know it might happen it might not but doing a fire drill is worth doing regardless of whether there ends up being a fire you communicate you discover errors you build a little sense of community and so these things can have a byproduct i think that's really powerful um as we keep talking i also just want to remind um, folks who are watching that if you want you can submit questions in the chat and you know as we go um uh you know, we will, um, we'll talk them through the, um, so there's do you wanna, this, Oh, go ahead. No, go ahead. I was like, do you want to, um, do you want to do a quick activity where we can Definitely. have everyone who's watching yeah, measure great. their own sense of urgent optimism? Yeah. How do we do that? Okay. Um, so there's a tool called the urgent optimism score and it, you apply it to a particular future. So one thing we always say, at the Institute is that there's not just one future. There's many futures, the future of food, the future of democracy, the future of women, right? So, um, and they all intersect and shape each other. So we're going to pick one future. Do you want to pick a future topic for us? Future of work, maybe? Yeah, let's do, do the future of work. Okay. work. Great. So um, we're going to ask three questions about the future of work. And okay. if you're watching in real time on YouTube, you can answer this, uh, these questions in the chat. That would be cool. Um, and Rory, I'm going to put you on the spot to answer them as yeah, well. Yeah, fine. Okay. I'll answer live. Let's do it. <laughs> so these are all uh, rate on a scale of one to 10 questions. So on okay. a scale of one to 10, when you think about how work might change in the next decade, do you expect that most things will go on as normal and stay the same? Or do you expect that many or most things will be radically rethought and reinvented? So one would be everything stays the same. 10 is everything gets reinvented. I'm a five um, on that. You're a five. In the, in the sense that I think some things will change a lot and some things will not change at all. And by the way, I'm the guy, just so you know my personality on this stuff, when the pandemic hit and we all went on, I was like, this is a tragedy for the world and nothing's going to change. 
like we're going to keep doing things more or less the same way. And I didn't literally mean nothing was going to change, but this was during the period where I think a frequent thing that happens, especially in tech, is people see one little glimmer of change and then they just go ad infinitum on it. They're like, oh, I'm working from home. So in the future, everyone will work from home. Well, at the peak of the pandemic, only half of people work from home. So, so that's why I say five. Okay. I like it. By the way, the best part of this tool is people explaining oh, their yeah, numbers. I that. So would you I, like I to hear- I felt the need to elaborate. <laughs> would you like to hear my number? Yes, as, please. I mean, okay. I'm like, I'm at definitely, a, I would say like at a seven because I think this is, you know, this is my optimistic side. I think a lot of people are going to refuse to work as much in the future. When I think about the future of work, I see- a lot less of it. I see like this massive winding back of how much productivity every human is expected to contribute. And I, uh, just like you based your five on, you know, your sense of what's actually changing, you know, I'm looking at things like the lying flat movement in China, where young people are really resisting traditional work. They don't want to toxic grind and we're seeing in the u.s this great black activism movement the nap ministry i which love is the all nap about, ministry right, rest is resistance and yeah i love they, the nap ministry i people just uh you know we have all these new terms like burnout culture and, and so uh i'm i'm feeling like the future of work is going to be less work and you know one one other thing we do right at the, the institute is we look back to look forward and, um, you know, our executive director, Marina Gorbis, who you know well, she really likes to point out that we used to work so much less um, before we had industrial society. Our rhythms of life were much more balanced. And it is possible for humanity, I think, to re-experience, you know, longer cycles of rest and and companionship and and enjoyment and art and caring than, and maybe not so much work. So I'm at like a seven and yeah. I'm happy about it. <laughs> so I love that. Let me, because you tell me to interrupt if we want to keep going with the exercise, but this is where I feel like all the richness is in the back and forth is I think when we talk about jobs for folks work, I'll say for folks like you and me, I a hundred percent agree with you. You know, I just, I have this daily, not daily now. It's like every few days it was daily for a while. Um, series on uh, Twitter and on LinkedIn and YouTube called This Is Not Advice, where I get in people and ask them right. And so today's question was, should my company adopt a four-day work week? And I think that for jobs like ours, that's definitely true. Like lying flat is office professionals mostly. But the data show that looking back to look forward, we have this weird inversion where historically people who were the wealthier they were, the less they would work. That became no longer true in the US. And so I think it'll just correct back to the mean. But so many people are desperate for more work. They need to pay the bills. They need to work more hours, not fewer hours. Well, and so I mean to your point about Africa and versus the industrialized West, I think we might just see a divergence. We might see yes. some people wishing to work less and less and other yes. people who just can't make ends meet working as hard as they possibly can. And that yes. sounds like a society in crisis to me, but that's a scenario about which we can now operate and do some things about. Yeah, absolutely. And this is, so this is why we play with our urgent optimism questions is to facilitate this it. conversation. And I mean, I, you know, I, a lot of, a lot of people who are desperate for more work is because they're not being paid a living wage for the exactly. work they're doing. And so there's all different angles we could we could come at it, um, including migration, right? One of the best ways to get people meaningful, well-paid, well-compensated work is to allow them to move more freely on the planet. You can see what future I'm trying to create. I keep sneaking it in. Okay, so the second question, still about the future of work, is um, – on a scale of one to 10, when you think about how work might change in the next decade, are you more worried or more optimistic, more excited? So one would be, I think the future of work is going in the worst possible dystopian no, I'm, direction. I'm more excited. 10 is yeah. more excited. 10 is like, uh, it's going to be amazing. Yeah, I, I'm, I I'm excited because I think we need, but I think that's because we're going to do something about it. Like, I don't oh, think I it's automatically going to be more exciting. Oh, well, wait till we get to question number three. Okay, so that's great. Okay. <laughs> um, so I'm a 10 on that. You're a 10. And you because know I believe say, in the power of human action. Like, we got to do something. 
Yes. And I saw a great question in the chat from somebody asking about how do we feel less stressed about the future when we're thinking about these, these possible changes. Mm. One great strategy is you get a bunch of people in a room like this and everybody's sharing their numbers. And when I do it with a really big room, I literally have people hold up their hands and you, you know, here's my one or here's my two, my seven look for the people who are 10 and go talk to them. So I think if somebody were feeling, you know, not, excited about the future of work they could come talk to you Roy I'm a 10 and uh and and get some signals or some clues as as to why maybe they could feel excited too okay so the third question is um when you think about the future of work and how it might change over the next 10 years how much power how much influence do you feel you personally have to help determine what change happens so one is no power, 10, well, they're 10. So if I felt like I didn't have any power, I would ask you, well, where does your power come from? What, what makes you feel, what are you doing that gives you power so that maybe I can find a way to build my own power? So wh where does your power come from for the future of work? Well, I mean, some of it, honestly, I don't know. It's just like, I just believe that. And because if I don't, I get too depressed. Part of it is I recognize that it's a function of privilege of like, I grew up in a household with two parents who wanted to try to change things. My mom worked for a nonprofit. My dad was an architect. He'd build buildings. She, you know, and so some of it is from emulation and habit. But if I had to answer in what ways do I think we can change things? It's like, you know, organizing people to do the right thing. And I'm involved in a lot of efforts in tech and elsewhere to do that you know, advocating to our elected officials and, you know, giving money to the ones who we think are trying to do the right thing or dot, dot, okay, dot. Phil, I'm ready to be filled with, with optimism about this. Can I give you a platform for like one minute? What are the types of changes we should be organizing to demand or, or ask for? I think the single, so I'm going to give you one, which is I'm really influenced by this researcher named Hari Han, who I knew years ago. She's not a professor at Johns Hopkins. And she has this line, democracy is a muscle. And what she means by that is if you practice acting democratically, meaning in concert with others, making group decisions, you get better at it. And one of the reasons I'm so fascinated by labor organizing is I look at the ways in which workplaces are a thing that not everybody shares, but many, if not almost all adults share having a workplace. And it's an opportunity to make some decisions collectively if you organize and figure out how to do that. That doesn't have to mean a union, but it sometimes can mean a union. And so or being part of an organized workplace is the one change that I think is in everybody's power. You know, of course you can vote and you should vote for the candidates, but I think that can feel very distant. And, and so these little democracies are building blocks that build up to the big democracy that we all have. And I think that's how we can also advocate for the changes we need government to make, like guaranteed income or more funding for science or, you know, better voting laws or whatever it is. So that's Preach, it. Democracy it. is a muscle. I love it. And, you know, so, you know, so I, I, my little futurist creativity, I want to spin out some scenarios. It starts to fire up when I hear you talk about this is, you know, well, that makes me want to create a scenario that we could play with where, where organized labor and unions, it, it's not just something that's at every workplace. Oh, that would be really fun. And we could ask literally everybody who has a job to imagine that either it, it's, it is unionized in the future if it's not today, or that it's more powerful or more commonplace in the industry. Um, but we could also imagine what if we had this sort of direct local democracy and, and experience of power. This is sort of exchange of, of collective power to, to create change. What if we had that in other types of, of communities or, or organizations or gatherings? Well, we do on some level. I mean, I just say there are examples like the PTA is a mm -hmm. good example of that. Mm -hmm. You know, student <laughs> government is actually a good example of that. Um, and one of the issues is that they're just not as prevalent in our regular lives. Sarah Horowitz has this phrase, mutualism, of these organizations where we all contribute to something together, make collective decisions about how to use it. And it's like, you know, uh, all the community building in the world. It's like, show me how to like run the parent organization for a kid's sports team. And every problem we have in big democracy probably exists there too. I love, so I love to say, I'm imagining a future in which we all 
you know, we go to we go to democracy the way we go to the gym. If democracy is a muscle that we that there are these literally these places where we can train that muscle and we can go there as enthusiastically as we would go to. I love that. You know, jump What's on yours, by the way? Well, I'll ask you that at the end. Le- keep leading us through. The, are we, is this the exercise? Or that's, is there more? that's 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 the those are the three questions. I love then, that. You can add up your three numbers for any future topic, and it kind of just gives you an interesting sense of maybe where you have the most energy and opportunity to affect the future. Like, what are your higher scores? What topics are they around? And if you have a lower score, you know, that's an opportunity to go look for some seven, eight, nines, and tens and learn from them. Because, you know, when you when you treat future imagination like a community practice, there's always somebody you can go and learn from and just like in the gaming community you know you, you you show up at a game you're terrible at it you don't understand it you can't get off this level what do you do you go to the community you go on youtube you look at a wiki you're 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 teaching each other um and so that is hopefully whatever whatever you feel urgent optimism about you can fuel me and i can fuel you with with mine i love that i love that okay so then just you know you've done a lot of this work on how to think about the future, what strikes me is we're coming back to human dimensions and also some pretty basic questions. When you think about how to get better at this over time, like in your, you know, you're, you finished this book, you're getting the basics out into the world. What is the trade craft of futurism? Like, I guess when I imagined a futurist in 2022, I might've imagined like some grand model where you're plugging in all the data and I don't know. And I really know it's not like that, but, but there's always trade craft and there's always improvement in how it works. And I'm curious what you're trying to get better at. I mean, I'm definitely trying to get better at creating scenarios that literally every person can read it or watch it if it's com- communicated through a video that everyone can understand it and see themselves in this future i think the ability to convey in a really accessible popular way different worlds that we might wake up in is something you know th- the whole field is really trying to get better at because it democratizes foresight when more people can even understand what we're talking about um and to 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 create compelling visions that we can ask questions literally anybody could contribute their point of view and you know it's people ask me um well how how did you know to be simulating pandemics back like why were you so obsessed with pandemics because it wasn't just the first we ran Superstruct at the Institute in 2008. Then we did pandemics again for the World Bank um, in 2010. And I, I love pandemic as a future topic because it would literally affect everybody. It is so easy to imagine how we would feel and need to react if we were asked to quarantine or if a loved one were sick. And there was a universality to it. And I, so I'm trying to get better at describing essentially these these planetary scale futures where we will all be affected um, and and then put them out into the world. What I want the world to get better at, of course, is everybody developing this literacy or this this craft of being able to create scenarios to communicate. Here's here's what I want to create. I mean, it's interesting. I look at like web three and all the excitement and and motivation that people in this space have. And I do think there has been a failure at some level to truly convey uh, the metaverse too, in some ways, like what, what are we trying to build in a way that anybody that my parents could look at the scenario and have an opinion, is this a future I want or not? I think what, what does it feel like to live in a world that's been transformed by these technologies? Um, So I think if we can all develop this scenario creation capacity, it, it would be easier for us to talk to each other about the movements we're trying to spark or the technologies we're trying to scale or whatever change we're trying to make. Yeah. the um, What I hear you saying in that, which I really relate to, one is the accessibility of what we share. Can we make it something that we can explain to people? You know, my mom is texting me while we're talking, like, what's DRM? And it's like, oh, you know, I did, like we've talked about that. I don't know. Not now. Um, but then the other one is, a shared future in the sense that so many of these conversations turn into who's going to win, who's going to lose, 
what's the struggle over the zero sum game and when there's clearly look some things in life are a zero sum game there are struggles and there can be winners and losers so i don't want to discount that um, especially as a person who's benefited from a lot of good luck in life uh Many things, though, are things that we can all benefit from. You know, a vaccine is a thing that we can all benefit from. And so getting us to think that way, especially in a diverse society, feels like a real um, a call to action for all of us of how do we create shared futures that are inclusive of all of our different ways of doing things. All right, I'm going to get back to the big picture, but I have some little questions to ask you for a couple of minutes. The Tabasco sauce, the candy, the dessert, which is, you know, I've known you now for a few years and I've seen that you run your life in a way that reads to me from the outside as you're very prioritized, you're very disciplined. You know exactly what you are and aren't spending time in. You're an athlete, but you also, you know, while the book is the, uh, is the, you know, is the result of many years of work. You also wrote it with urgency, as I understand. And I guess I'm curious, you know, people imagine a futurist. They imagine somebody who wears those like ugly Google glasses that, you know, it's like using weird technology and, you know, but if somebody had to imagine how this, these kinds of things actually inform the day-to-day way you run your life and like how your life works with, you know, you're a parent, like all these things, what wisdom can we glean from how you run your life? I mean, I, I will tell you, I, I, I don't know whether this is universally good advice or not. Um, I'm not asking for advice. I'm just <laughs> yeah. asking about your experience. How I live my life. Yeah. Um, I mean, one of the things that I have come to prioritize is doing things that I can do today that I want to do, doing them now while I can. Um, because as, as you start to imagine possible changes, you know, you realize that habits you practice, traditions you have as a family, places you go to visit, you may not, they, they may not exist in the same way. And, you know, I've, I have a good friend who was, uh, who recently became a mom and she was texting me and she's like, is my daughter going to have a future? Like what is she lives in Texas and she's very overwhelmed by political things and the power going out and the infrastructure, you know, falling apart. And, um, you know, I, I, I said to her the same thing that I do, like, we have to be flexible. We shouldn't assume, I tell my kids this all the time. Like, um, isn't, isn't it great where we live? Maybe we'll live somewhere different in the future. Like this, this sense of uh, being flexible, adaptable, and then just do what you love now because it it might not be it might not be something you can do in the future. I love so that. in a way, it makes me more present to the moment. So that is a way of doing things, which I think is really powerful and a paradoxical truth about thinking about the future. Is you know, all my work on the future work? I was like, nah, I'm way more worried about the present now than I was before. What about tools, tricks? Are there things, you know, you recommend like habits like journaling, but are, is there software that you use? You're like, I don't get why everybody doesn't use this. Is there some, you know, I'm not asking for the thin like productivity hacks kind of thing, but are there meaningful techniques that you use that you find valuable in how you make it all work? Yeah. I mean, first of all, I will say we have a database at the Institute for Signals of Change. So these are the news stories, the the things we see on social media or out in the wild that indicate uh, a a real change that's happening today. Right. And so we you can analyze. And and so, I mean, I think everybody should have uh, a place where they collect signals. And before we built the database, I would just email them to myself with the subject signal of change. And then when I was like wanting to remind myself of all the clues to the future, I would just search for that in my inbox. But so having a practice of, of just collecting clues to how the future might be different and then sharing them, you know, having once a month coffee meetups with other people, like signal sharing and discussion, it should be a social habit, a social practice. Um, But the most like practical thing uh, you know, I was I was taught to do this uh, because when I first showed up at the institute, and they're like, "Okay, write a report." I was actually, I think my first report was about the future of work and social technologies that work with brain. They're like, "Write a report." I'm like, "I don't know. I don't really know much about this. What am I supposed to do?" And um, you just have to go search, start looking for interesting people and interesting ideas. And so, one habit I've developed is uh, 
I will, I will describe things that sound ridiculous. Like it's just a technique to stretch my mind. So I write down like all my assumptions that I have, like humans will always need oxygen to breathe. Like just things I assume will be true in the future. Cause I'm trying to, you know, unstick my mind and become aware of changes that I might not otherwise know about. And then I, I write the opposite. So mm. uh, humans no longer need oxygen or, you know, there's a minimum voting age. In, if I'm thinking about the future democracy, so I rewrite it, you know, babies can vote like just crazy. Oh, there's things, a maximum right? voting age. Oh, Matt, I love that. So, so you write alternatives and then just put them in Google and you know what? You will find people advocating for policies you've never heard of. Both a maximum voting age and babies can vote are real policies that oh, are yeah, being that. You know, advocated. Um, I was using this as an example the other day and I just literally put it into into Google News and German researchers just figured out a way to replicate photosynthesis for humans so that we could breathe carbon dioxide instead of oxygen. Wild. And, uh, you know, researchers are interested in this for lots of reasons. One is Mars, you know, we're going to an a environment where oxygen is a scarce resource. Um, so we're like, why would we, why would we need to create these technologies? Um, so it's just like a very practical habit. Write down your assumptions, rewrite them so the opposite is true or some strange new alternative is true, and then just go check out Google News, Google Scholar, social media. Is anybody doing this stuff? And then collect it. Just collect it and fill your brain with all of these clues to how the future I might love be that. different. Yeah, my tip on that is I have two. One is um, I used to be in the place where when I'd hear about some new dimension, some new signal of the future, an element, something happening, my first way of thinking about it was to think, what, are, what do I think about this? Do I think it's good? Do I think it's bad? Do I think it's happening? Do I think it's not? What I've learned is I'm terrible at that. And I actually think most human beings are terrible at it or the good ones are good by luck. So now I have a very different view, which is try it. So like when I first heard about the internet in 1994, I was like, these blue links, this seems stupid. Goes to show how much I know. And when I first heard about Bitcoin in 2012, I was like, yeah, I don't think so. But the difference was in 1994, I decided not to work on it. And so probably lost many years of what could have been. But I bought Bitcoin in 2013. And so like dabbling a little bit. And, you know, another thing I'd say in our chatting society, although this session where I'm talking is not an example of this, is to spend more time trying things than talking about them is a thing that I think people often would benefit from. And we have a question in the chat before I ask my last big picture question about fiction. That's my second thing. First thing is try it. Second thing is I read fiction to try to imagine. Are there authors who, when you think about what you read, who you believe are like worth reading on imagining the future? I mean, like the sad thing is, uh, is I don't read as much fiction probably as I would like to, um, especially in the process of researching scenarios. I literally, most of what I read is a, is a, some peer reviewed article. Some it's a yeah. paper, it's a journal article. Um, that's You're like the most, most serious I game maker I know. <laughs> not serious, not the most serious person about game making. You may be that too, but combination of game maker and serious person. Yeah. I mean, it's, um, it's a challenge, I think, also for all of us is I also read very slowly. So especially mm. fiction, I'm like a book or two a year. Um, mm. And so mm. I need to make my recommendations count. And then, you know, there's all the science fiction writers who write about, you know, Kim, um, uh, Ministry for the Future, Kim Stanley's yeah, book. Yeah. You know, it's like, I know it's good. And, and I haven't read it yet. But I know from every... I try to find the people who are writing about the human experience and, you know, I found NK Jemison and Octavia Butler, you know, to be great for that human experience. Um, all right. Now let me go big picture on you. Last question. This is the Commonwealth clubs kind of like signature closing Proust questionnaire question. So you have been talking about this in the context of your book, but now I'll turn it back on you. So I gave my idea about labor organizing. If you get to pick one thing people should do to change one idea that you can understand in a minute or less what's your ask okay so i've been describing these social simulations um where everybody imagines themselves in a future scenario the most people that we've ever had play one at the same time is about twenty thousand people i would like to live in a world where let's say just at a national level in the United States, 
that there's a simulation that's as big as the Super Bowl. And instead of all watching a football game on a Sunday, one day a year, oh, we all that. simulate the future on a Sunday and use it as an opportunity to develop some collective intelligence and empathy and um, quickly, like, let's overcome our Ooh, national normalcy bias. Uh, yeah, so we're, we're got, we got to scale up. So 20,000 is, I mean, I hope this year we can closer to 200,000, you know, hopefully. Um, I love that. Hopefully this becomes something we all. Yeah, that put, takes the founder in me and makes me think, well, what would it have to do to do that? Probably have to activate our like tribal energies as individuals. It'd have to be a lot of fun, you know, a Facebook, but in the future or something like that. Um, I love that. Uh, and then uh, other than buying the book, is there anything as we part that folks can do? And I'll give instructions on that in a second to support you in your work. Yeah. I mean, if, if folks don't know the Institute for the Future, we've got a great newsletter that's free to join news from the future, and you can come and hang out with me and take classes with me on Coursera. Um, I have a, five course specialization in future thinking, which is free to audit, or you can do a bunch of peer reviewed activities and get a certificate in it. I mean, there's lots of ways to, to start becoming a futurist yourself. And, um, I hope that people do feel inspired. I love that. that. Thank you for sharing that. So that's Jane McGonigal, everybody. Thank you for joining us. And so we're encouraging everybody to pick up your copy of Imaginable, published by our friends at Spiegel and Grau, and you can get it at your local bookstore. I think that the Commonwealth Club has a bookshop link. I also like Reparations Club, a Black-owned bookstore. Um, and if you want to watch more programs like this, or you want to support the Commonwealth Club's efforts to make these kind of virtual uh, programs and also in-person programming possible, you can go to commonwealthclub.org slash events. And I'm Roy Bahat, and you can continue the conversation with me and Jane online. We're both very online. You can find Jane at Avant Game on Twitter, maybe someplace else. I'm Roy Bahat on Twitter. And I uh, just want to say thank you to everybody for joining us and uh, take care to be continued. Thank you, Jane. You've been listening to a podcast of Inforum from the Commonwealth Club of California. Support our podcast and find out about upcoming live or online events at commonwealthclub.org slash Inforum. And join us again soon for another podcast from Inforum. You never know who you'll meet.